when we look at an investment there, what can you give to that potential business? You could give, you know, your money or you could give your time. And at first I gave money to this business sort of wasn't doing well. And I thought, well, heck I can join in this business. I can make a big difference. Hoorah. And I spent a significant amount of time with that angel investment. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm, I'll be your worst podcast host today. And I'm here with featured guest, Edmund Lowell. Edmund, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Let's do it. Graduating from Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, where he studied law, finance, and technology. Edmund is a serial entrepreneur living in Asia since 2011, innovating at the crossroads of finance, technology, and the legal fields. Edmund has built a number of fintech and reg tech products during this time, including flagtheory.com, kyc-chain.com, and selfkey.org. The Selfkey Foundation raised 21 million US dollars selling out in just 11 minutes for the crypto utility token called Key, which is now listed on Binance. Edmund, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, so my story, I'm trying to think about how far back I should go. But when I was in Northeastern, I got a, got a job as a real estate agent and I was selling property in the United States. And my timing was very bad. In 2008, as you well know, the global financial market had a huge crisis led by the US housing market. And I found myself as a real estate agent, sort of out of real estate to sell, or at least buyers who wanted to sell. So I was looking very hard at my skill set as a college trained individual. I didn't really have a lot of skills from the real job world yet, but I knew how to file paperwork. And so what I started doing was setting up LLCs, setting up corporations in the United States. I knew how to do that. And I, and I did that well for my clients. And I got to the point where I graduated from undergrad and had an opportunity to go to law school, but I deferred and wanted to travel in Asia. So I had this small business running in the background. And in that year that I deferred and took off, the business took off as well. And, and I was just able at that point to move to Thailand full-time and continue running this business, which is setting up companies, setting up LLCs and banking accounts. So that was kind of my, my first start in business. And after a few years, as most entrepreneurs do, I had a little bit of extra capital and I was interested in doing some angel investments. So at that time, I had a good friend who was starting up a business and I made an angel investment into his company. And I think that, that that was maybe the first part of the mistake, but that wasn't in itself a mistake because when we look at an investment, there, what can you give to that potential business? You could give you know, your money or you could give your time. And at first I gave money to this business, sort of wasn't doing well. And I thought, well, heck, I can join in this business. I can make a big difference. Hoorah. And I spent a significant amount of time with that angel investment. And that was, I think, my big mistake because the opportunity cost of going into that business at this point, it was up to eight months, was really weighing on me because I had this concept, which I'd written a white paper on, which was that we could use the blockchain to help manage our identity in a, in a self-sovereign way, was eating. I really, really, really wanted to get into this business full-time, into this blockchain 
company. And yeah, that's when I really just had the feeling that I needed to stop working for this angel investment company and move on to a new business and, and cut my losses. So that's mm. kind of the, uh, the story in a nutshell, I would say. Mm. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about kind of when you, when you realized that it was, it had gone wrong or it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. The business still exists today and it's just not grown at an exponential rate, right? So there's, again, that, that word opportunity cost, if I'm going to be spending my time on something, you probably want the business to be growing very quickly. And if the business is growing very quickly, that's probably because the market that you're in is also growing very quickly. And for me, kind of this e-commerce software company was a consolidated market where more or less the industry leaders had consolidated into a few major players. Whereas blockchain, on the other hand, in 2015, was still very, very early. So I just had this compelling urge that even though the business that I was in wasn't, wasn't wrong and probably could continue, it wouldn't have the upward trajectory that I was really hoping for. And I just needed to, to cut my losses and, and kind of start fresh with something new. Mm. So it sounds like what you're talking about is opportunity cost. Right. That it's just, you know, this is okay. But, and it's also, I'm curious, what, how would you describe the lessons that you learned from this? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think the big lesson that I learned as an entrepreneur is that unless your heart's in it, you really shouldn't do it. If there's going to be a business that you're working on seven days a week, it's got to be something that you really enjoy. And if it's not something that you care deeply about on an intrinsic level, it's tough to continue the motivations through the ups and the downs because there's going to be ups and downs. I mean, as an angel investor who's purely passive, I'm sure that you can invest in a business that you don't necessarily care about. I mean, I've done that and, and I've made money doing that. However, this show is called My Worst Investment Ever, so we won't talk about those. And in this case, I didn't have my heart fully in e-commerce software. And I think that that was also a big realization for why I needed to step away and do something else because, you know, when it did get tough, I was constantly questioning, you know, is, is this right for me? Mm. Let me uh, share some of the takeaways that I take from your story. One of the things is the, uh, the idea of looking at a market's growth, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you could say it's easy to succeed in a growing market. You know, it's, it's harder to, con to succeed in a market that is consolidating, falling, slow growth. And sometimes, you know, you have to ask yourself, do I want to make it hard on myself? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, many people end up in companies and industries only kind of by falling into them. But if you have a choice, sometimes it makes sense to, you know, get out of an industry that just is going to be a grind for a long time to come. So that's one of the things that I take away. The other one is that the concept that I call often uh, like to refer to, which is zero-based thinking, the idea that, you know, okay, knowing what I know now about this, if this opportunity came along, would I take it up right now? And if the answer is yes, well, then double down. But if the answer is no, walk away. And that brings me to the third thing that I think about when I, when I listen to what you're talking about. And that is that I often say that it's, it's easier to know the things that don't work than the things that will work. So whether that's a relationship, whether that's an investment, whether that's a business, eventually we understand the things that we're doing 
and we can usually see if something's not working, but we can't see where the next opportunity lies as clearly as we can see what is not working. And so the result of that, I often say is that, you know, someone asked me, how did you achieve the, the little bit of success that I've achieved? And I said, I quit a lot. And, you know, that sounds a little bit weird, but basically my, my life has been really identifying the things that I didn't like, though I thought I liked them, though I thought this was going to be right and saying, okay, I've learned that that's not for me. Now I'm out of there. And I see there's a couple of different types of people. There are some people that basically stay in a situation their whole life, even though it's not really what they want. I could never do that. And then there's some people that just, it really takes them a long time to extract themselves out of a bad situation. But for me, I learned very quickly that you got to walk. If you want to get success and happiness and all that stuff, you've got to walk away from the things that you know aren't working. And there's no guarantee that you're going to end up at something better or something you know, amazing, but you at least know that you're getting away from what's not working. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, as entrepreneurs, we often use the phrase fail fast, right? And, and as an entrepreneur, I don't know if you always need to be as dramatic as cutting bait and just kind of walking away completely, whereas there may be opportunities to pivot. So if I continue the story slightly, as I started that blockchain startup, I thought a great place to be would be Panama. So I upped and moved from Asia to Panama. I spent about three months there and I quickly realized that that was not the place to be. So I pivoted, I moved to Hong Kong because that was another global financial center. And then I started to get some traction. We went through a few different accelerators, four in total. We got our first major banking client in Standard Chartered Bank. There's some great articles online about that work. But I also realized at that point that even though we'd created an efficiency for a financial institution, we'd still left a lot of value on the table for the consumer side. If you've ever tried to set up a bank account in Hong Kong, you know very well the pain that goes into doing so. And when I talked to my team, we realized that there was an opportunity for an identity wallet where the user, where the either small business or individual could store their documents and permission a financial institution to access that data was what we needed to make to evolve our product. And that was you know the birth of SelfKey. So it's really been an evolution for me of you could look at it as small failures where I learned what didn't work and then pivoted and tried new things. And I would really challenge the assumption or idea that there's businesses that you set up and immediately just find success right away. I think for the most part, it's a series of failures. And we have this sort of survivorship bias in the entrepreneur community where you only hear the stories of the winners. And that's why I think podcasts such as yours are really, really important because you learn so much more from the failures. I mean, it's just unbelievable the amount of insights that you glean from a, from a failure versus a success. The most that you gain from a success is you learn what you do right. It feeds your ego and you think that you're impervious and you probably make a bigger mistake next time. So mm. it's just really important, I think, to, to study where things went wrong, where others went wrong, as opposed to glorifying your successes. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of interested in your, in your businesses and when it, whether it's the KYC or the self-key, you know, it's, it's the reason why I'm interested in it is because you know, after the 2008 financial crisis and even after 9-11, the U.S. government basically started coming up with the idea that they're going to track all financial transactions of everybody basically in the world. And it was supposed to make Americans safer because, you know, obviously everybody thought, well, these, you know, these guys are basically 
transferring money around the world. They're terrorists. And so we're going to catch them. And then after the 2008 financial crisis, it seemed like the U.S. government had an opportunity from a tax perspective to say, we're going to force every bank in the world to follow FATCA and all of this stuff. And that's when I say, as, a, as an analyst, I say that that's when the U.S. took over the global financial system. I call it the U.S. global financial system. And I would say that the actual flexing of the muscles of the U.S. financial global financial system was really first done very hard against Russia by, by the Obama administration, where they sanctioned individuals, companies, and they blocked them from the U.S. dollar business world, which is the only business world based upon the control that the U.S. government got over the banking system. And then KYC, Know Your Client, was a key way of doing that in suspicious activity reports and all that type of stuff. In fact, we just had in the news that there's been this big, you know, number of suspicious activity reports filed by the banks, which of course, you know, some people could say that's absolute nonsense. That is the banks covering their asses because they have to just report suspicious behavior or else they're going to get in trouble themselves. And so, you know, there's this, this whole world of KYC that's just gone crazy. And I thought, Maybe this economic destruction right now would force some of the banks that just can't afford the amount of overhead required to do this type of thing, that they just can't comply. But it brings me to my last, my, my sum up related to KYC. An American friend of mine tried to set up a bank account in Hong Kong. He's living in Thailand. It took him six months to get through the KYC process. Maybe you could just explain, you know, the self key and the KYC and all the stuff that you've worked on. And tell us about the kind of the breakthroughs that you've you know, been able to, to do with this. Sure. So when you look at Hong Kong, a lot of the reason why the KYC takes so long is that it's largely paper-based. It's manually process-driven, and it requires you to appear physically in Hong Kong, perhaps multiple times. So what we're trying to do with KYC Chain as the B2B software as a service is automate as much as we can, the processes around collection of the documents, automate the manual processes around checking of those documents and checking against sanctions lists and be able to allow the user and the bank to conduct this process in a remote fashion. So that's the KYC chain side of things is you can think of it as software that a bank would run. Now, the self-key side of things is very, very different. It comes from an ethos and philosophy of self-sovereign identity that Individual identity is derived from the self being the sovereign. It doesn't come from the state. It comes from yourself. And so that has a very similar ethos to, say, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, where it's not issued by a central governing party. It's you know, issued by a smart contract, and anyone can have self-custody of that. So with self-key, you're essentially the self-custodian of your identity documents and data, and then you can permission access to those documents and data. And with technology, we can start to layer on even more interesting things like sharing that data in a way that preserves the privacy and identity of the individual. Let me give you a quick example of that. When you're sharing your, let's just say your identity document when you want to enter a bar and prove that you're over 21 years old in the United States, you have to share with them your identity document that tells the bouncer where you live now, that's an oversharing of information, which is somewhat unsafe. Let's say that you're an attractive young person and the bouncer shows up at your house and starts stalking you or one of many other different scenarios that could occur. Really, all that you want to convey to that bouncer is that you have a credential, which is that I'm over 21 years old. And I think when we start to see 
the opportunities to use credentials in KYC, we thought, wow, this is just a huge opportunity here where the user should be in control, the data should be safe and could be, could be shared in a safer way, and the financial institution should perform this KYC checks in a more efficient manner. So that's kind of a high-level overview of how SelfKey is more of a user B2C application that's a wallet. And the user can store their data in the wallet, but a wallet in and of itself isn't very useful, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want a self-sovereign identity today. I mean, there's been zero people that have ever said that ever, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people who've said, I would love to have a bank account in Hong Kong, or I'd love to have a bank account in Singapore. And what we do is in a marketplace, provide different options that users can self-select different financial services they'd like to apply for. And then one click, they can send their documents and data and they can apply for that product or service. So we're trying to make that financial services discovery as well as financial services uh, sign up KYC process a bit easier, both for the individual, but also for, for the bank, for the financial institution. And was it hard to get the banks or the financial institutions to come on board with that? Did you have to pilot it you know, for a long time, let's say with Standard Charter or some others, and then others are coming on board? Or is that, you know, is that easy? Is that hard? I would never say that working with the bank is easy. And I think even they know that and would say the same. Certainly in a private capacity, most of the senior bank managers would, I think, admit that to you. And, and to be fair, they have to deal with their home regulator. Sometimes they're thinking of the US regulator. There's a huge amount of costs. They're afraid of losing their license. Banks do not have a lot of room to be agile. They'll even sometimes set up an innovation arm where they'll do fun little POCs and sandbox projects. But for a bank to be truly innovative from their core up, almost never happens, except- Not allowed. <laughs> pretty much, right? It's basically regulated away. So it hasn't been easy to get the financial institutions on board. However, we've set it up in a way where they're not having to deal directly with any cryptocurrency. They're not having to deal directly with any crypto wallet. They're running software that's B2B software that helps them with their processes. And we're simply providing some new leads to them. So for them, it's a business development procedure and they're happy to receive new potential customers. Any bank mm. is, is always okay with that. The back end and the cryptographic security, I think will come over time and this will just start to be a more accepted way of doing business. I mean, we're speaking together in Thailand. Thailand has a DID on a national basis. So they really have a, a far advanced digital identity system. There's other countries as well that are implementing something similar. And I think this is a natural course of evolution for KYC and this identity management ecosystem, that it will continue to be more electronic. It will continue to be, as it's electronic, backed by some kind of immutable hash on a blockchain and will have more faith in doing business remotely. So I think that that's, that's sort of going to happen eventually, almost on its own. Got it. All right. So based on what you learned from the story that you've told us and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, if you make a business investment and it's going to be your business, then your heart has to be in it, right? And you have to be willing to run that business for a long time. And I'll give you a twofer today. If you make an angel investment, treat it as something passive because lots of times the entrepreneurs don't want your active involvement. And there's a fine line between being an active investor and being extremely annoying to the entrepreneur that you've given money. So if you give the money, <laughs> Give the money and be quiet and take the updates when they come. And if you run a business and you are the entrepreneur, make sure your heart is in it. It's something, you know, I, my best friend, Dale Lee, came to visit me in 1994 
in Thailand. He came from the U.S. and he had been in the coffee business. And he said, "Wow, we should start a coffee business here. Everybody's drinking Nescafe, and they're going to drink fresh coffee." Well, after a little bit of studying and, and a lot of money, we set up a factory, and in 1995 we launched that business. And Dale's run that business now for 25 years in Thailand. It's a B2B coffee roaster. But you know, he and I have been friends since we were very young. We actually first met when we were about 14, and then we really got to know each other from 18 on. And what we decided was that you know he would be the managing director to run the business, and we would be equal shareholders. But I would be working in the investment banking community as I did, and then therefore I'm more of an advisor. And we had many times that you know I thought, well, you should do this, you should do that. But what we what I decided to do is that you know, rather than do it that way, I tried to be a, a trusted advisor and also accept the fact that there's going to be times that he's going to do things that I disagree with, as long as they're not on an ethical line, which would never be the case with Dale. But, you know, then I just need to step back and, and let it happen and accept the fact that I don't know how to run that and provide as much guidance and information as I can. We also made a decision between the two of us that if, if the business ever got in the way of our friendship, we would close the business because we want to place our friendship and our relationship above, you know, the business. And luckily it's a weird situation, but it's managed to last 25 years. And it just made me think about, you know, it is a very sensitive thing to be an, an, an investor when someone else is running a business and ultimately they're facing all the enormous pressures that, you know, as an outsider, you don't see. <laughs> so it's easy to be, you know, an armchair, what do they call it? armchair quarterback going, come on, you should have done that. But the reality is, you know, in the heat of the moment, he's got to make the decision. So I definitely know what you're talking about, about trying to not get involved too much, but still be involved. That's a challenge. It's very much a challenge. I mean, I have a, have a story which is similar. The business that I mentioned earlier, Flag Theory, is now run by a new managing director, and I'm basically not active in that business at all. And I'll sometimes come with ideas, but I really have to be careful about how hard I push those ideas because ideas are so cheap and the execution is so difficult. And for me to come in as, as kind of a passive, silent, so-called partner, sometimes not so silent, it's almost damaging in many ways, because this person is trying to run a business and you come in kind of helicopter dropping some ideas. It's just not, it's rarely helpful. It's really helpful. Then what happens to the idea? They have to implement it. They have to do the legwork. You're, you're, you don't have the skin in the game when you're a passive advisor or investor. And really the best that you can do is offer advice and say, hey, let's not get this, let this get in the way of the friendship. I think mm. yeah, the way that you, you handled that is very professional and it's I wish that I've always been so professional. <laughs> Sometimes I've been too forced with my ideas, but I've learned, learned to, to back off. Very cool. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Edmund, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, and I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. And I say brave because when I ask most people to come on the show, they say, no, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. So congratulations, you've now turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, thank you for having me on, Andrew. It's been a pleasure and look forward to seeing how we can interact in the future. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap. 
on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host, saying I'll see you on the upside.